good morning. This feels strangely familiar and yet odd at the same time. Uh, if you're a guest, welcome. If you're not a guest, and I'm a guest to you, uh, my name is Steve Hafler, and a year ago I was still leading as the lead pastor here, and we have since gone overseas uh, to help train people to target and reach the unreached people groups uh, that remain. I'll give more information on that on June 10th, I believe, the second Sunday in June. I'll be back. Um, but having been back, I actually asked on Thursday if I could preach. And I often think of the glance that Jesus gave to Peter while Peter was denying the Lord. And I don't think it was a look of rebuke. I think it was a very moving, a very awakening look by Jesus to Peter. And of course, after that, the prophecy was fulfilled. The rooster crowed and Peter went somewhere to weep. And that's what we need. We need the look of Jesus Christ sometimes to break our hardened hearts, don't we? We get fixated. We get under a delusion. And sometimes it's His sweet, gracious look. And I believe God, He certainly speaks through His Word, but I think He also looks at us through His Word. That's what I want to consider this morning. These are the words of Christ to us. So I want to address you as a family. That's what the church is. Galatians 6.10 calls us a household of faith. That's why we call each other brothers and sisters. And we can do that because of our union in Christ. Now nearly everything I say this morning, even the texts I'm going to turn us to, you've already heard me preach. Most of you have already heard me preach these texts. So the value of what you're going to hear this morning is not novel or original, but I believe it needs to be re-instructed, if you would. I hope it's fresh encouragement, and I hope, like Jesus said to each of the seven churches in Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This particular local church has an interesting history, and it still holds amazing potential. Not just because our building is paid off. I think we've heard that a lot in our members' meetings. But it's so much more than that. And it's not even that we've existed here for 30-plus years. It has amazing potential because of the message of Jesus Christ that is proclaimed every single week. And throughout the week, as we scatter from here, Amazing potential because of you, followers of Jesus Christ, who are salt and light. Salt preserves. And this community needs to be preserved. And light illumines. And this city needs illumination that only Jesus can provide. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that sometimes the salt loses its saltiness. And sometimes that light is hidden, but it should not be so among God's people. It's something we do together, not alone. We reflect the light of Jesus Christ 
to this community. And since it's done together, the more Satan can fracture and divide and polarize Jesus' disciples from one another, the less effective we are at our mission. Do you agree with that? Satan does not mind getting us passionate and aggravated about 101 different things. And sometimes those things are secondary doctrinal things. And he does not mind us being distracted by those, diverted by those, as long as we are not lifting up the beauty of Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Remember, he appears like what? He doesn't always appear like a dragon or a liar or a lion. Sometimes he appears as what? An angel of light. And so don't be surprised, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, if his ministers, Satan has servants, they're humans, if his ministers also appear as angels of light. So while we're fixated on the evil of the world and the disagreements within the flock, there he walks in his angelic robes undetected. And he divides and he destroys. And this is not a scolding. The reason I asked to preach Thursday morning was from a heart of a shepherd to a flock that I love. And having been displaced for seven months, both emotionally detached and geographically detached, coming back in and having a heart full for you, the church that gathers as highlands. This household, this family that gathers as Highlands has been through a difficult year. To hear all the names read out loud last week of those who have departed during the members' meeting was difficult. To sense a growing divide again is painful. It feels like we are in danger of being caught in another riptide and pulled apart. My question is, why? Why is that the case? What is the cause? Why the disunity, division, quarreling, and departures? Who or what is causing instability here? A shepherd shepherds. You have a team of shepherds trying to shepherd you. Shepherds are also sheep. It's complex, isn't it? And sometimes sheep kick. Sometimes sheep bite. And sometimes shepherds don't shepherd well. Or they use their tools wrongly. But that's not the issue. The issue is we are the flock of God under one good shepherd. And we have under shepherds and we are all sheep. So who is dividing the flock? Ultimately, we know it's Satan. Satan is the enemy of God. He is a master strategist and tactician. He distracts, divides, destroys. He's a liar. He's a master deceiver. He's a dragon. He's a bloodthirsty devourer. He's the lion that seeks to devour, always on the prowl. He's an accuser of the brethren. And when we unfairly accuse each other, we are actually imaging Him. 
not Christ. Fallen humanity also plays a part. Galatians says the works of the flesh are evident. And in that list, eight of those sins and the result of those sins, eight in a short list, have to do with relationships. And even though Satan is a master tactician and the works of the flesh are evident, we don't need to be ambushed at a choke point. What is the gospel? If I were to say in 30 seconds, just stand and tell me what the gospel is. I'm not going to do that. Some of you who don't know me is like, is he really going to call on us? People started looking down, right, turning their scriptures. What is the gospel? And in 30 seconds, as you present what the gospel is, let me ask you this. Would it sound like good news? Would it be like, that's beautiful? Would it sound like the messenger after his people have won the battle, running from village to village announcing victory? Or would it sound like a list of do's and don'ts? The treadmill of success and accomplishment. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Do you realize not every doctrine is of first importance? This is one of the texts that shows you that. But I delivered to you what is of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins. By the way, this is the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, just like the Scriptures say it happened. And that He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared. That's the Gospel. And He died for your sins so that you might receive His righteousness. The Gospel is also expounded even more clear in Romans 5-8. to It's a much more extended explanation, but in each text, it is good news. Now, what will we add to that? What are we going to add to? Christ died for our sins. He was buried and He rose again just like the Scripture said. And that's good news. What are we going to add to that? Yeah, but to really know you're born again, you need to believe this or do this or this. Other doctrines are important, but the Gospel is of first importance. All doctrine matters, but not all doctrine matters the same way. And not all doctrine is as clearly systematized or even interpreted as clearly as we'd like it to be. Let let me explain. In 2003, I flew into the middle of a civil war in Sudan. At the time, it was a single country. We had to be trained, we had to be cautioned, we had to have GPS coordinates to the closest dirt airstrip, which is basically a soccer pitch, where somebody could come in and evacuate us. Of course, if you're reading the news, Sudan is at war again. We flew in and we met the village leaders under an acacia tree, where they brought in a young calf and they slit its throat and we had to jump over the calf with both feet in the air. Do you know why? Neither did I. But I asked no questions for conscience sake. 
And so I jumped over this peace offering, if you would, jumped over the calf, landed while those living blood, if you would, was coming out of it. For the next two weeks, I preached Christ to them. The airplane that dropped us off left under United Nations regulations. It could not remain in the area. And I preached Christ to them for nearly six hours a day. We got to Hebrews, and I was talking about the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And one of these new airmen with the scars, traditional scars across his forehead, put his hand up. And through the interpreter, he said, does that mean we don't need to offer a sacrifice for sin anymore? They were caught in the Old Testament laws. And instead of just saying yes, because I'm not the authority, I said, let's go back and read what Hebrews says. And his face changed, and it, I believe he was born again at that moment by placing simple faith in Jesus Christ alone for the sacrifice of his sins. I did not teach about the mode of baptism, though I have convictions about that. I didn't teach about spiritual gifts or views of creation or the tribulation or the millennial, though I have specific conclusions about those. Why? Because that's not the Gospel. Yes, it's God's Word. But it's not the Gospel. Your view of those matters doesn't save you and it doesn't unsave you. I delivered of first importance to the Sudanese, what I also received, that Christ died for my sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. Let me give you another perspective. On March 19th, less than two months ago, it was the Persian New Year. A team from the church we gathered with in Yerevan, Armenia, went downtown Yerevan for a week and started passing out Persian New Testaments. That's what most Iranians prefer to be called, Persians. They were passing out Persian New Testaments for the holiday week because Iranians will travel up to their allied country, Armenia, where they have a little more freedom and they enjoy holiday up there. So they're down there passing out Persian New Testaments and they have to be very careful, or they totally cover themselves, not, not, not necessarily out of their tradition, but because there are plain-clothed secret police from Tehran that are taking pictures of any Iranian taking a Bible, so that they will then be arrested and deported and imprisoned. That's the risk people are facing just to get into their hands the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 2-3, to Jesus walks among His church. Seven real churches in Asia Minor. He sees them. He walks amidst the candlesticks. He evaluates them. He commends them. And He corrects them. He corrects all but one, the smallest, most persecuted, most seeming insignificant, most unsuccessful in the eyes of the world, they're the only ones that that are not corrected. One of those churches was in what is today called Selchik, or Izmir, in Turkey, or Turkey, and it used to be called Ephesus. In fact, all seven churches were located in Turkey, 
where sadly 99% of the 85 million people are Muslim. Where is the light of those churches? Where's the church at Ephesus? Where is the glory of Jesus Christ in that land? I want, to hear what Je- I want you to hear what Jesus said to this specific church. I know your works. He knows our works. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. That's their commendation. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My name's sake. He could say the same thing about us. And you have not grown weary. Not sure he could say that, but he could commend us on the other parts. But I have this against you. How many of you know what's coming? How many of you know the correction? That you have abandoned the love you had at first. The love for Jesus and the love for one another. You've left it. It is a willing departure from it. Well, how serious is that? I mean, if we're doctrinally sound and separated, but we don't have love, is that really a big deal? Jesus says, Remember there from from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A love-deficient separatism was not sufficient in the eyes of God. And there is no lampstand in Selchik right now. He walks amidst highlands. What does he see? What does he see in me as an individual member? What does he see in you? How would he evaluate the attitudes and the actions of last summer? How does he evaluate the attitudes and actions of our current status of what is unfolding now? And what is encouraging is we have a church history, even an inspired, breathed out record from God, where the Apostle Paul had to speak into this in other churches several times. One of those churches? Ephesians. So if you're not already there, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. What a gift to have a breathed out record to help us navigate difficulty. And to be warned about the threat of continued disunity. And really, just the two main points before we observe the Lord's Supper together is walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel. Walk is about conduct. And then secondly, live in line with the Gospel. Ephesians 4, 1-6. I'll start reading with the word walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 1. Well, what does that look like? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's teaching, at least in chapters 4 and 5, is structured around this verb, Walk, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. No longer walk as the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. A walk indicates direction, 
something learned, something controlled. It's deliberate. What Paul has been teaching from Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is that God's eternal plan is being revealed in the church. That's what's at stake when we talk about unity. That his plan is to bring unity to all things, Ephesians 1.10, in heaven and on earth under Christ. That unity displays a trophy of his grace to Gentiles and Jews, to people who are vastly different, to people that come from another country and look out at you, you, you all look quite similar, but you're not. There's an incredible variety here. And that could, if we live and walk like the Gentiles, walk like unbelievers, divide us. But it doesn't have to because we're not like them. We are in Christ. This unity, chapter 3.10, is displayed so that, Ephesians 3.10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's not just to a watching world that unity matters, but to spiritual beings that you cannot see. So down what line should we expect attack? Because in this passage, emphasis is placed upon the ideas of one, one body, measure, build up, love, Well, that attack, satanically, will come down one body, unity. Body, health, measure and build up, growth, love, Christ-like affection and sacrifice. Paul is concerned that every local representation of Jesus Christ on the earth, His church, is in unity because it reflects the unity we have been given in Jesus Christ. This is part of the reason Paul had to rebuke the church at Corinth for a unexpected divisiveness. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, you have believers in this local church saying, I follow Paul. I'm with him. That'd be easy to say, right? He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. Another says, I follow Apollos. Of course, if you read about him, he was a gifted orator. Or I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Or here's the, here's the one that's tough to argue with. I follow Christ. But they were doing it with a wrong motive. They were actually doing that to be divided. Paul asks this, it's an interesting question. Is Christ divided? It's a gruesome picture. Is he chopped up in little pieces and every little sectarian group gets their piece of Christ? In Ephesians 4, Paul presents three attitudes that are crucial for unity. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. We talk about attractional ministries, right? You can't have a large church without a professional band. You know what would be attractional in a church? Humility, gentleness, and patience. 
C.S. Lewis defines humility in his book, Mere Christianity. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of yourself properly. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Restrain your sense of entitlement. Promote others' interests over yours that are in line with the Gospel. Do you know that without humility there really can be no biblical unity? Gentleness or meekness, strength under control. Refusing to deal with people roughly or gruffly or arrogantly. Have we done that? Demanding and forceful believers need that admonition. Patience, suffering long with the faults of others. We need this. Enduring annoyances and irritations over a long period of time. Slow in seeking to sharply rebuke others because quick rebuke is often a sign of selfish irritation. These three attitudes are not just static. They're not like these little theological silos, but they are played out in life. Look at verse 2. Here's the application. First, bearing with one another in love. That's what humility and gentleness and patience do. We put up with people differently than the world does. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 3. And it is important to realize that unity is something given by the Holy Spirit, not something we manufacture or demand. It is based on the oneness of God and the oneness of the Gospel. As a matter of fact, look at verse 4. Paul lists seven things that express the uniqueness of the Gospel over which, yes, we have doctrinal unity. There is one body. That's the church. And one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And that baptism is that, that identity with Jesus Christ in His union. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is a theological list of doctrines over which we have unity. We would call those core doctrines. Fundamental doctrines. Things that touch the Gospel. Verse 3, where it says maintain the unity, suggests it can be compromised. That sweet togetherness. I'm looking out here. I remember some of your testimonies when you joined the church. You came from other assemblies. And when you walked in here, I still remember one, one of our men, now serving as an elder, said what overwhelmed him, that's not his exact words, was the love of this flock the genuine love and care that he experienced when he walked in those doors. Do you know why that is compelling? Because it's Christ-like. We maintain the unity because it can be compromised. What will that require of us? When disagreements arise, as they typically do in a family, Rather than provoking with strong opinions, dogmatic assertions, or gossip, we walk worthy in a manner as Jesus' followers, with humility and gentleness and patience. 
Again, what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know you are my disciples. By what? By love, John 13, 35. It's not that we take the high road on every single issue or I'm, I'm, I'm this political persuasion or, or I'm any other thousands of things but by love. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul to the, to the church at Corinth that was divided and was abusing giftedness, he said this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's talking about spiritual giftedness. If I exercise these incredible spiritual gifts but I don't have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, again, spiritual gifts, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I could say, if I have the most exacting doctrinal statement on every single teaching, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. What about sacrifice? That has to account for something. Well, if I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, the ultimate price, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. By the way, he's writing this to a church. In chapter 13, is in a three-chapter section on spiritual gifts and how we edify one another. Chapter 12 to 14. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So let's be very clear on a few nuances as we renew our commitment to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Number one, unity does not hinge on uniformity or unanimity. It is okay to have elders divided. You can still have unity. It does not demand uniformity or unanimity. There were times in the New Testament church where a simple majority was enough. How do you think the, how do you think the minority felt? Well, they were still called to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Number two, disagreement does not have to cause disunity. It can lead to disunity, but it doesn't demand it. Godly people disagree with Ephesians 4, humility, gentleness, and patience. Number three, doctrine rightly divided does divide. But it should divide between believers and unbelievers. And between false teachers and teachers of truth. Not between Christians who happen to land on different interpretations of Scripture where different interpretations are understandable and permitted because they are not fundamental core doctrines. Let me make that sort of caveat. Number four, some doctrines divide that shouldn't. I'll give you a second to absorb that one. Do you agree with that? 
Some doctrines divide that shouldn't. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul's writing to young Timothy who's exasperated. He's prone to fear. He's got physical ailments. He's tired of running into opposition. I mean, I don't even know what Timothy's thinking. I've never had that experience in my life. As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. No, don't leave, Paul. (laughs) Right? So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It's an interesting term. He doesn't use the word false doctrine. There's a word for that. What he uses is heterodox teaching. Not to teach any different doctrine. Not to elevate something that would harm the church that shouldn't be elevated. Non-essential, heterodox teachings. Teaching logical extensions as truth itself. Verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. I hope you, I hope you get the theme that's about to be hit on again. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Do you know the insistence on sound teaching and avoiding other doctrines as primary is actually motivated by a love for the people who hear preachers? Because it's about truth? not tangents or speculations or distractions. Let me provide one example in closing. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul presents a clear gospel. To change it, add to it, remove from it, revise it, you don't have the gospel, right? And then then he launches into an autobiographical testimony of the gospel. He gives his own personal testimony about this good news of Jesus Christ. Well, in chapter 2, he talks about bringing Titus with him. They went up to Jerusalem. Fourteen years later, they go to a Gentile city called Antioch. And somebody there, by their actions, is revising, distorting the Gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, several times, Paul calls this individual someone with prestige or a perceived pillar or someone who has influence. But he's not living according to the gospel. And the most problematic thing about this is we know this man. His name is Peter. He was fine eating with the Gentiles. God had showed this to him in the book of Acts where this blanket, it looked like a blanket, comes down, all kinds of animals. Everything was off the menu for Peter. These are the dietary restrictions. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. It has to happen three times. Finally, God has to tell him, no, Peter, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. Rise up and eat. Somebody's at the door. It's a Gentile. He goes and meets Cornelius. And Peter gets this revelation that, oh, I get it. Anyone in Christ is clean, Jew and Gentile. 
In the face of scoffing, he starts to eat with the Gentiles, even before what, what Peter did in Galatians 2. He faced criticism for it. He faced opposition for it. But he knew what God had showed him. But all of a sudden, out of fear, because certain people with James came to spy out the freedom these people had in Christ, these religious elites walk in and Peter pulls away from the Gentiles. It would have been easy for the Jewish apostles to say, of course all Christians should be circumcised and follow our dietary restrictions. They need to align with us and show us they are serious. They didn't do that. Because that would have redefined the gospel. You know, this is a threat we face as well. Sometimes we add a cultural code as proof of holiness. They don't actually believe there's another gospel, but the high degree to which they demand cultural adaptation distorts the gospel. Sometimes secondary doctrinal beliefs are added to core doctrines of faith as a proof, as sort of a gauntlet that you're truly a believer. See, we run the same threat. And so it should be encouraging that you have a guy like Peter who also defaulted to where he shouldn't be. Scripture gives us a biblical reaction to people who endeavor to enslave us or change the gospel, Galatians 2.5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In our day, faith alone has become a controversy. Many will say they are saved by faith alone, but they add things to it as proof that you're genuinely saved by faith alone. And we add certain distinctions and ask people to subscribe to certain things outside of the gospel. Peter is part of a group Paul referred to as an influential group. They are leaders. By the way, in this context, this is the, this is the first time in the letter where Paul puts forward justification by faith alone. It's in this controversy between two good men, two good leaders, two apostles, and all of a sudden, out of it, he says, a person is not justified by the works of the law. That's what Peter was giving the idea that the gospel was about. He didn't believe it, but the way he was walking showed that. But by faith in Jesus Christ, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be Justified. So that's why in Galatians 2.11, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says this, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There may be good men who in the side hallways or outside of this assembly are inciting division but are doing so in such a narrow way that it redefines the gospel and somehow they need to be stood and opposed to the face. The fruit of Peter's narrowness demanded confrontation. Why? Because Peter changed his eating habits. Yes, he did. And why did he do it? It says this in verse 12. This is the problem. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, certain men, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing 
the circumcision party. Does hypocrisy work? I would say it's infectious. Peter, other Jews, even Barnabas, so yes, fear, a culture of fear, intimidates even good men, even apostles, even men that were on the same missionary team. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. And then there's like this statement, like Paul's, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Do you see the danger? We're not talking about unbelievers and believers. We're talking about a ministry team of apostles who find themselves not walking in line with the gospel. Without the gospel, our hearts have to manufacture sort of self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. But what the gospel tells us is that we are all unclean without Christ and we are all clean in Him. Let me conclude. 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth says, and he calls them brothers. They are brothers. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. In chapter 1, he calls them saints. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? We live in a country that is not unified. We live in a world that is not unified. We have families that are fractured and not unified. Satan would love nothing more than to get his churches divided and off mission. And so often, too often, the church reflects the strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions of the world rather than the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And would you fight for that? Would you like recommit this morning to being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Would you have the spirit of the Apostle Paul who says, man, Peter, we know him. He was like, he was the key leader of the disciples. He went up on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm not going to say anything to him. But he was wrong. What he was doing didn't say the right thing about the Gospel. So he needed to be opposed to the face because he stood condemned. There really are two answers for sustained dissension and division, and that is, number one, possibly unregenerate church members. That is, people professing something and attending something that is not true of them personally in their heart. That's possible. Secondly, unregenerate church members or disobedient church members, sorry. That is people not living in line with the gospel like Peter. It's possible there's unregenerate members. It's possible there's disobedient members. But I think as the Lord walks through this church, he would also commend Highlands because there are obedient and faithful church members that are supportive, that love Christ, that want to see the gospel exalted 
and that don't want to see this thing spiral downwards and sucked under by another undertow. So in closing, as we approach this table, a table that really portrays unity, a communion with God and a communion with each other because of our union with Christ, His shed blood, His death, His resurrection. We will all preach a sermon in a few minutes. As we take the bread and the juice, we proclaim His death until He comes. Those are fundamental doctrines. And it's a message we get to preach to each other. But are you in communion with God? And are you in communion with one another with humility and gentleness and patience? Because by this shall all men know that you are follower learners of Jesus Christ, that you have love one for another.